Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction, where we're going to be talking about climate doomism. If I had been writing this series five years ago, I wouldn't have included this episode. Nevertheless, I think it is important, and intellectually honest, for any very well-rounded approach to the subject of climate change to include this. I also want to emphasise some caveats right at the start. One of the things we often find ourselves repeating as people who are concerned about climate change is that we're pushing the Earth into a space that we've never seen before. Anthropogenic climate change will push the global average temperature beyond anything that has been seen for tens of thousands of years. At the same time as we're doing this, we're putting immense amounts of pressure on everything in the natural world. Resource extraction, biodiversity loss, deforestation, water use, species extinction. The list goes on and on and on, and climate is only part of it. The other part is how our societies, our social and economic structures, the life support system for modern civilization, if you will, is configured and how it interacts with the natural world and how it interacts with itself. That is an incredibly complicated question. Living an urbanised lifestyle, as the majority of us humans now do, you can often forget that it does interact with and fundamentally depend on the natural world at all. And this should give you an indication to just how large the changes are that we've made. The reason that I emphasise that this is an incredibly complex system with many complicated and interacting parts is really a mathematical one. If you have even a remotely normal mathematical equation, not even necessarily a complicated one like a differential equation, which tells you how one quantity varies with another, the classic physicist trick is to try and find a fixed point, a stationary point, and then expand around it using the Taylor expansion. If you consider an expansion to first order, as we say, this is the same as imagining that you can approximate the function you're looking at by a straight line that is a tangent to the function. In other words, if you're imagining a line on a graph, you're zooming in really, really close to the graph on any curve and saying, well, here it looks approximately like a straight line if you ignore any complex curvature. If you think you're on a straight line, then everything is fine and predictable. It's easy to predict and extrapolate, in fact, that the changes you have experienced until now will simply continue at the same rate that they're going exactly at the moment, at the instantaneous gradient of that curve. We are currently living in a climate change world. Wildfires, hurricanes, flooding, crop yield declines, sea level rise, heat waves, droughts, all of these things are being influenced by the anthropogenic impact on the climate. We can get pretty good estimates for the impacts of climate change on each of these different disasters. And we find that some of these natural disasters are now distinctly unnatural, i.e. they could not have happened without the human influence on climate, while many others are worsened by that human influence on climate. We can estimate now the negative impacts that climate change is having on us. We are currently experiencing warming of around 1.1 degrees above the pre-industrial level, give or take. If you assume that the climate system and the Earth system is linear, then the negative impacts of 2.2 degrees would be double what they are today. But as you can imagine when you're imagining this curve, this curvy line on a graph, pretending the curve is a straight line only works for so long. That's the physicist's curse when our approximation is no longer valid, when the things and the effects it's been safe to ignore for convenience come roaring back and cannot be ignored anymore. Zoom out and you might find the curve bending away from you and suddenly your nice linear approximation is wrong. Back in February 2020, at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, this failure to be able to appreciate non-linearity was why so many people said, only 10 people dying a day, it's less serious than flu, and then generally deleted their posts at a later date. 
All of this is to say that the impact on the natural world and the world of humans from climate change is more complicated even than a differential equation. And anyone who wishes to rule out the idea that there might be some non-linear, unpredictable impacts from kicking the climate system beyond realms that we've ever observed before is clearly indulging in wishful thinking. We know that there are natural feedback loops that can kick in and worsen as you reach higher temperatures that accelerate the problem. And we know that one of the hardest things to predict is human behaviour and how society will respond to the pressures induced by worsening climate change. Will we band together and decarbonise our societies and reduce our dependence on fossil fuels? Or will we instead split apart and become isolated and nationalistic and try to burn whatever we can get our hands on? Catastrophic outcomes are certainly possible from where we are right now due to climate change. We can't know how likely this is to happen because it depends both on scientific uncertainty but also, more crucially, on the political uncertainty of how our societies respond both to the impacts of climate change and to the climate policies that we need to implement to try and reduce them. With all of that said, it's clear that avoiding a path that takes us even further into the danger zone and therefore inevitably increases the probability of a catastrophic outcome is the thing that we have to do. It's the equivalent of slamming on the brakes instead of accelerating when you're driving on a cliffside and a sudden fog descends. The fact that many of the changes we have to make to address climate change could also, if done right, ultimately result in massive co-benefits to justice, both international and intergenerational, efficiency, health, in a world where one in six premature deaths is due to air pollution, energy costs, and the way we live our lives in many ways, and so on and so forth. You know, the the fact we can have all these co-benefits too is merely a nice additional detail to the imperative to make sure that we are rebuilding society on sustainable foundations. This is my perspective, which you all know already. I'm not afraid to warn of the dangers or make the case for rapid action that makes the transition away from this way of running the world, our energy systems and our economies. That is the priority of this century. The long and short of it is simple. Modern society has brought with it incredible advances, although not very evenly distributed. But we have constructed it on unsustainable foundations. We must rebuild those foundations sustainably. So with all of that said, and the uncertainties about what might happen duly noted, I'm going to talk about doomerism. I'll start off with what I think of as the definition. A climate doomer is someone who essentially argues from an incredibly fatalistic point of view that there's nothing we can do to prevent catastrophic impacts from climate change. They don't think that a catastrophic outcome is a possibility, they argue that it's a certainty or near certainty. The core message of the Duma is that climate change is unfixable now. It's already too late. Social collapse with massive loss of life or sometimes human extinction is inevitable. Many, although not all, make this case by exaggerating the known facts about climate change, making erroneous links between temperature thresholds and impacts, or arguing that some specific set of impacts make the collapse of human civilization, which is never properly defined, inevitable. And in so doing, they commit many of the same fallacies that we had to deal with from climate change deniers for so many years. Obviously, I think this is both wrong, scientifically, and extremely harmful to our cause, and the cause of creating a better world more generally. Doomerism is, as one scholar put it, climate denialism by another stripe. It shares a lot of the same features with climate denial overturning the scientific consensus with a few cherry-picked studies, wild claims that are unsubstantiated by the evidence, and possibly underlying personal and political motivations for its pursuit that go beyond actually trying to assess the reality of the situation we're in 
and how to deal with it. And it has a lot of the same effects. It muddies the waters of debate. It delays action. It excuses inaction on climate change. It discredits scientists. And it spreads misinformation. And these are all excellent reasons to oppose it, beyond it just simply being incorrect. Now, listening to this, there may be a part of you that's thinking, who died and made you shepherd of the climate Overton window? And maybe that's a fair point. Maybe you suspect me of taking everyone who thinks climate change is not going to be as bad or a bigger problem as I do and calling them deniers, and then on the other hand taking everyone who thinks that it's going to be much worse and slapping them all with a label of doomers. After all, didn't I just say that there are big uncertainties and that it's hard to make predictions? So isn't this whole thing an exercise in me stamping out alternative views to mine? Well, I think that is an argument you could make, but the difference is that I'm not claiming to have perfect knowledge. There are people who have very respectable opinions and well-sourced opinions and backed-up opinions who think both that climate change will be worse than I do and those who think it will be easier to tackle and they have different reasons and different things that they think are important in those trends. There are differing arguments, of course, about how best we should tackle climate change, which we've talked about a lot in this series, and what the impacts will be, and over specific scientific parameters like what the climate sensitivity or the carbon budget is, how the specific impacts are going to manifest themselves, how much societies are going to be able to adapt, and how important a role feedbacks will play. In this series, I do try to present these uncertainties in both sides of the argument, where there are two reasonable sides of an argument. Of course, I have my own opinions, which are probably clear already. But I would contend that the doomism I'm talking about is vastly over-certain in its extravagant claims, incorrect and damaging. It really is a new form of climate change denial, and so it's not intellectually honest of me not to combat it in the same way. Specific Doomer beliefs are varied, we'll get on some of the calling cards in a bit, but I want to give you a flavour. Here is a quote from perhaps the classic and the first and the doomiest Doomer, the Doomer before it was called, Guy McPherson. He's coined the term near-term human extinction, which he's been peddling online for many years now to a small group of followers. This is a quote from the massive climate change essay on his website, which has long been a bit like a Doomer Bible. Quote, The great dying wiped out at least 90% of the species on Earth due to an abrupt rise in global average temperature about 252 million years ago. The vast majority of complex life became extinct. Based on information from the most conservative sources available, Earth is headed for a similar or higher global average temperature rise in the very near future. The recent and near future rises in the temperature are occurring and will occur at least an order of magnitude faster than the worst of all prior mass extinctions. Habitat for human animals is disappearing throughout the world, and abrupt climate change has barely begun. In the near future, habitat for Homo sapiens will be gone. Shortly thereafter, all humans will die. End quote. What follows is a very, very long list of paragraphs in which some scientific papers are cited, usually to cherry-pick the worst possible sounding conclusion or result, and to give the appearance that these wild claims are supported by the science. But of course, this claim that all humans will die in very short order, in the near future, is never backed up by any of these papers. Perhaps indicating the level of scientific credibility this guy has, and the track record for his predictions, although he is still quoted in some quarters as an expert. I should point out that the whole essay starts with this. Quote, Updated most recently, likely for the final time, on 2nd of August 2016. Yeah. I agree we've had an apocalyptic three years, but Macpherson's repeated predictions that all of humanity will go extinct next year, no, may maybe next year, strain credulity to breaking point. 
McPherson's near-term human extinction movement has a Facebook group. Full disclosure, I was banned from that group after identifying myself as a climate scientist and trying my best to answer the questions that people put to me. Because, you see, the group has a rule, a ban on promoting what they call hopium. Anything remotely hopeful is barred from the discourse. You have to accept near-term human extinction as inevitable and unavoidable, or at least say that you do, as part of the condition of joining, and I was kicked out because I broke those rules. Now, I thought I was pretty morose, but the people in that group make me look like a sunshine and rainbows optimist. Now, not everyone's doomer rhetoric is quite as extreme as McPherson's. He's been a fringe figure for many years now, and the Facebook group has a few thousand members. But the worrying thing is that I and other climate scientists I know have begun to see in recent years at least aspects of doomerism and doomerist thought entering the mainstream, which is part of why I want to talk about it. Now, when I talk to these climate scientists, they say they spend as much time combating people who think that the situation is far, far, far worse than they are telling them that it is, and that they are lying or in denial about it, as they do combating people who think that global warming isn't real, which is the thing that we had to deal with for so many years. I don't want to get too much into a taxonomy of doomers, partly because that would involve me sitting on some iron throne and judging who is or isn't a doomer, but I'm going to talk about a few case studies and I'm going to give you broad outlines of the way that these people argue, and then you'll have to make these judgments to a certain extent for yourself and see how well people are supporting their arguments. But uh, another example I'm going to refer to quite often is someone who did refer to Guy McPherson's essay in their original piece. This essay was written in 2018 by Jem Bendel, and the essay is called Deep Adaptation, and that has formed its own movement now with a good number of adherents to it. Initially, when I came up with this idea, it was going to be a debunking of deep adaptation, but that's been done truly brilliantly by a group of writers on open democracy under the title The Faulty Science, Doomism and Flawed Conclusions of Deep Adaptation. Now, that does a brilliant job of going through point by point and debunking all of the specific scientific claims and the flawed methodology of deep adaptation, while also making the strong case that doomism is very counterproductive to the climate movement. So I do urge you to read that piece if you want much more in detail about this, uh, Open Democracy, The Faulty Science, Doomism and Flawed Conclusions of Deep Adaptation. Take a look. Let's talk about some telltale signs of doomerism and refute them then. One core argument that a lot of doomers use is that climate scientists are basically underplaying the threat from climate change. The arguments here vary. Sometimes you'll see a few cases of climate scientists who've been involved in lobbying on global warming, and they will then argue that they have ties to the fossil fuel companies or some political agenda. They will say that scientific reticence and the requirement to get consensus before anything can be declaratively stated for sure means that climate scientists can't tell the truth about how bad their findings are, a fear they will face a backlash from the community. They will say that scientists are under a degree of pressure to produce acceptable results and acceptable findings in favour of a narrative that supports the status quo and doesn't explicitly imply the need for radical changes, and so on. The first allegation that climate scientists have ties to a political agenda that prevents them from revealing the reality of what they find is basically straight from the climate deniers playbook, only reversed. So let's quickly deal with this by assuming that it was true and then comparing it to what's actually happening. Let's say that scientists were all trying to downplay the severity of climate change. Maybe the implication would be that scientists are tweaking their models and underplaying climate sensitivity so that damages look less bad than they are. Remember, this is how much warming you get when you put a certain amount of CO2 into the atmosphere. But the most recent generation of models has higher climate sensitivity than any generation of models before it, to the extent that the community is trying to reconcile it downwards to more closely match other lines of evidence for what climate sensitivity is. 
In other words, if climate scientists were tweaking their models to make the situation look better by, for example, emitting important feedbacks or something, they, they would end up having tweaked their models to give a higher estimate for climate sensitivity than estimates that you get from other line of evidence, like some paleoclimatic data and empirical observations of how much warming we've had thus far. Besides, in this case, if you are to say this, you're again making the deniers error that science is some monolithic thing. Different scientists argue for different levels of climate sensitivity, they use different models, they use different lines of reasoning to get there, and that's what gives you an uncertain consensus, as you have lots of people who have different opinions about what's going on. But more fundamentally than that, if scientists were systematically underplaying the threat from climate change, why would we produce so many papers that simulate and describe impacts from RCP 8.5, a worst-case scenario of unmitigated emissions which now looks unlikely to come to pass, and would require emissions to continue growing unabated until the end of the century? We see, in reality, that coal use is now starting to decline, but in RCP 8.5, it's two times, three times what it is by the end of the century, what it is today. Surely, if you were systematically downplaying the danger, you would never use such a scenario. You would try everything you can to use only scenarios that assume that climate mitigation is successful. That would be perfectly justified, wouldn't it? If climate scientists were only simulating papers and uh, studies that assumed that the policies that governments say they'll do uh, will be enacted. But instead, most of the studies that we do, and then the studies that get cherry-picked by these people, are assuming that governments will throw all of their climate policies out the window, and in fact just continue to exploit fossil fuels faster and faster than ever before. The fact that instead we often present papers that compare a high emission scenario to a medium emission scenario, or a high emission scenario to a successful mitigation scenario, demonstrates that we're exploring all of the options here, and we're certainly not downplaying or indeed overplaying anything. By contrast, though, doomers always tend to cherry-pick from the highest emission scenarios, and they sometimes elide the impacts that are predicted from 2100 to be somehow imminent. But the whole point of a scenario, and having a range of different scenarios, is to demonstrate how much climate change and how much the impacts we're going to face still depend on what we do over the coming decades. Indeed, if you look at all of these different scenarios, the emissions up to about now, 2020, are pretty much the same in all of them. It's only later in the century that they start to diverge with the high emission scenarios shooting off into the atmosphere and the low emission scenarios going down to net zero rapidly and then in many cases removing CO2 out of the atmosphere later. I mean, we can talk about how feasible that is, but the point is we've got a range of different scenarios here that depend on a range of different activities. So Aduma's saying that it's impossible for us to do anything other than increase emissions by a factor of four over the next 80 years? Seems like a lack of imagination and ambition to me. And of course, the irony is that Doomers wouldn't even be able to cherry-pick these studies which examine high emission scenarios in the highest end of climate sensitivity models if climate scientists were systematically downplaying the danger, because we'd never consider simulating them in the first place. But these things are simulated by the mainstream communities, the main modelling groups, the main IPCC reports include them, all of this stuff is part of mainstream climate science, and it's certainly not downplaying the threat. Now, one area that I would generally agree with the doomers is that economists have been guilty in the past of downplaying the potential risks of climate change, in terms of, say, the percentage of GDP and damages that we'd suffer if unmitigated climate change took hold. We've discussed this at length in other episodes, and I'm very happy to criticise that, but that's very different to saying that climate scientists are downplaying 
what their scenarios simulate. Lots of scientists hope and I think believe perhaps naively, especially in a field like this, that they can be completely apolitical. And therefore they want to say, well, we're just simulating the simulations and if our paper says the world will end at nine degrees Celsius, uh, we're not going to tell you how to do your business, but we think you should probably avoid that. And I think that to an extent is naive because it means that economists and policy types fill in the gaps uh, where the scientists aren't making declarative enough statements. But I will criticise that level, but it's not really the fault of scientists so much as economists and policymakers who are downplaying the threat. Doomer arguments is basically that mainstream climate science is wrong and that the risks are far higher than is commonly understood. And I don't think that is true. Another thing that you'll often hear them say is that scientists are reticent to say things unless the results have been demonstrated to be robust and that there is consensus about what they mean and that this produces these IPCC reports which have to be produced in a slow and lengthy process and eventually come to some mild statements about, well, we have moderate confidence that X will happen and some confidence that Y will happen. Yes, this is a valid point. Anyone who's ever read a scientific paper knows that it's full of caveats, that scientists are usually very careful making exact claims. And that's the whole point, because they write for an audience that is trying to tear them and their arguments apart. And they always will. It's an adversarial process. You can't just come in and make claims without expecting people to, to rip it out of you if you make mistakes or if there are contradictory lines of argument, lines of evidence to what you're saying. It's only when you can prove something beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's considered to be settled science. That's how science works. That's how it's supposed to work. Imagine if we didn't insist on consensus and lines of evidence before declaring something was true. If we didn't talk about uncertainties, but instead just cherry-picked outcomes to fit a political narrative. If we didn't caveat our work and pointed out all of the assumptions that are made and all of the limitations that it has, but just said, yeah, it's definitely true, every single time we published a paper. That wouldn't be science. So although I'm sure there are aspects of discourse where uncertainty is overplayed and this has caused delay in some cases, I would argue that it's an inevitable feature, not a bug, of a process that tries to determine what the truth is. It takes time to thrash things out and argue the case and gather evidence and explanations before you can prove anything, in the same way as you'd want a full and fair trial before passing down a sentence. In the Duma literature itself, we see exactly, precisely why this is. None of this stuff would get published in a proper, peer-reviewed academic journal. Just look at Guy McPherson. There's a reason that the claims that climate change will cause human extinction don't make it into peer-reviewed literature. There can be awful impacts, it's true. If we continued with high emissions for some decades, there would be parts of the Earth that would become uninhabitable. That would create millions of refugees and destabilise society. But the leap from that to human extinction? Human extinction is a very high bar. Global thermonuclear war probably wouldn't lead to human extinction. That hardly means it's a good idea to have a global thermonuclear war. But instead you see this jumping to conclusions from A to B to E to Z. For example, many doomers love the Arctic methane feedback loop. They will often suggest that this is underestimated in current literature. The idea is that the melting Arctic would lead to a catastrophic eruption of methane which would, in the doomist view, basically trigger the end of the world. The most recent scholarly evidence on this suggests that the Arctic methane feedback, while still a real concern, is likely to account for a few extra years of human emissions particularly on a mitigation pathway, i.e. if we keep temperatures low and we take action to avoid climate change, the feedback effect is less bad. There's little evidence that sudden catastrophic releases of methane can happen, and the idea that they have caused large spikes of temperature in the past has been largely discredited. It's basically considered at this stage to be more of a slow burn. 
although, as ever, reasonable people disagree about the potential magnitude of this feedback, the idea of a sudden catastrophe has definitely not been borne out by the evidence since it was first proposed about ten years ago. But this is nothing, because a trope you'll often see in the Dumas literature is that the first time the Arctic is ice three, it will immediately cause a clathrate gun to go off, where all of this methane is suddenly released, which will then inevitably lead to human extinction. If you try to wade through the endless cherry-picked essay on Guy McPherson's website, this is basically the argument he's making. And each point of it is not substantiated by the evidence. There is no evidence that an ice-free Arctic will cause massive sudden methane release sufficient to raise global temperatures by multiple degrees at once. But this massive leap of logic is just asserted without evidence. Deep Adaptation does this too, picking up on a prediction about Arctic sea ice made by one scientist, Peter Wadhams, which the consensus suggests is probably inaccurate. And then it uses it to claim that somehow this renders the calculations of the IPCC redundant, along with the targets and proposals of the UNFCCC, end quote. So yeah, just throwing all of climate scientists and all of mainstream climate science in the bin uh, based on some pretty sketchy predictions that don't even mean what you think they mean anyway. That's the level that we're dealing with here. And the problem here is that cherry-picking for the papers, conclusions, or scenarios that support their worst nightmares is a trope amongst doomers just as much as it is amongst climate deniers. If I wanted to, I could go through the literature and find the people who say climate sensitivity will be really low, economic impacts will be really low, uh, transitions will be really fast, why don't we just focus on this scenario that is not very realistic, where we immediately cut our emissions to zero, all this sort of thing. And then I could make an argument that was just as well sourced as the doomist argument, saying there's absolutely nothing to worry about and you shouldn't even bother devoting a second of your time to thinking about it because it's not going to be a big deal and it's basically already solved. If you allow yourself to do that, rather than, you know, assessing all of the evidence, then you can come to faulty conclusions. And if that's the standard of evidence that you have, then there's no reason why people couldn't completely contradict you with equally bad evidence. So this is a doomist paradigm. You take some event that is likely to come in the future, say crossing 1.5 degrees of warming, that's an arbitrary threshold except for the fact that the world agreed on it as an aspirational target in the Paris Agreement, or you take an ice-free Arctic Ocean, which unfortunately may well happen soon. Once you've got that event, you point out validly that this event is likely to happen soon. But then what you do, as a doomer, is wave your hands and link this to some catastrophic impacts without a great deal of evidence. If you like, you can use the word feedbacks a bit to justify it. In fact, another false claim that the doomists have regularly put about in recent years is the idea that mainstream climate models quote-unquote don't include feedbacks and therefore horribly underestimate warming. I've been in arguments with people who say that the models don't include the effects of melting ice as a feedback. But this has been included since the 1980s. It's a big part of why all models warm the Arctic faster than anywhere else. Climate models don't include perfect representations of every feedback. This is true, and much work is being done all the time to improve their representations of feedbacks so that we have a better idea of what is going on. But they do include most of the feedbacks that we have decent confidence about, and people will give you estimates for what the rest of them mean. And they might mean that the carbon budget is smaller, but our evidence for them being catastrophic, particularly if we do a lot to mitigate climate change, is very low. Another model that doesn't include accurate representations of feedback is the Duma model, where the second you cross 1.5 degrees Celsius, which, as I've said before, is quite arbitrary, quote-unquote feedbacks inevitably kick in and accelerate us on into inevitable human extinction. But that is not a good representation of what climate and carbon cycle feedbacks are expected to do. 
We talked about this idea before and its limitations in our thermonuclear takes episode on the hothouse earth papers some years ago. But the idea that you attach runaway climate change to a specific temperature threshold is even more damaging. Because once you believe that the world ends at 1.5 degrees, and we're inevitably headed there probably in the next 10 years, then what's the use in even trying? In these arguments you will see that another tactic that doomers use a lot is the so-called Mott and Bailey tactic. For those of you who didn't grow up in a nation with castles or learn about them in school, a Mott and Bailey castle is a castle on a hill. That's the Mott. There's a walled courtyard below. That's the Bailey. If the castle is attacked, defenders who start in the Bailey have the option to retreat to the high ground of the castle in true Obi-Wan Kenobi style. This is a mode of argument where you make a very bold claim and then you're challenged back down to one that's much easier to defend. So, for example, in the Doomy case, you might claim, within five years we'll trigger irreversible feedbacks which will lead to the destruction of civilization and human extinction. Then, if challenged, you can say, well, study X suggests that we have five years of carbon budget left for 1.5C, and after 1.5 of warming, study Y suggests that permafrost melting will accelerate. So you can see clearly here which is the Bailey and which is the Mott, right? People start with this wild claim about human extinction and then retreat to, well, we're quite close to 1.5 and that will lead to feedbacks or something. Clearly I don't need to explain to you that there's a huge logical leap from permafrost will be melting faster in five years to human civilization will be put on an unstoppable path to destruction in five years. But you do see this often. For example, sometimes they'll predict that societal collapse is inevitable. Then, when challenged on how you can prove that when societal collapse is not even well defined, they will fall back on a safer position which states that we should consider the possibility of extreme and worst case scenarios. They might make some outrageous specific claim about how bad climate change is inevitably going to be, and then when challenged on it, they will fall back on a study that says the effect is worse than anticipated. Well, yeah, there's a gap between worse than anticipated and catastrophically bad, you know. It only has to be 5% worse than anticipated for it to be worse than anticipated. It's this vagueness, this elision between different conclusions that is often used to make these claims. They will then talk about how we need to prepare for societal collapse, and then fall back on the idea that we should adapt to the anticipated effects of climate change. The aim is then to appear much more reasonable, and indeed the person you're arguing with can't really disagree with the more reasonable point that you make up. I mean, yes, of course I would agree we should prepare for worst-case scenarios. You should always prepare for the worst case. Yes, I agree that you can find predictions in the literature that were too optimistic. Of course, you can also find some that are too pessimistic, but this somehow doesn't get mentioned. Yes, I would agree that we need to adapt to the impacts of climate change that are now inevitable, and I don't think we're doing enough to do that. I don't think we're prepared enough. Especially, there's not enough preparation globally, internationally, and we're leaving a lot of less wealthy countries in a horrendous position to tackle the impacts of climate change that are coming down the line. And those are terrible things that we need to address. But I think the mainstream would agree with me there. These are not controversial positions. What is controversial is saying that the world is going to end in 10 years. But unfortunately, this wasn't especially helped by the fact that the 2018 IPCC report on 1.5 degrees of warming ended up being summarised in the public eye, in the media generally, as the headline, 12 years to save the planet. Or even, sometimes this is made vaguer, 12 years to save humanity. I have no doubt you've seen this, I hear people saying we have 10 years of livable climate left on a semi-regular basis still. The 12 years meme is a very unfortunate 
for reasons that we discussed in the carbon budget episodes. Partly because it relies on this idea that we'll have the same emissions for the next 12 years as we did in 2018, and then we'll cross the carbon budget for 1.5 degrees, and so we'll very likely exceed 1.5 degrees of warming. This is wrong on so many levels. For one, it assumes our emissions don't change. If they shrink or rise, it's obviously wrong. Furthermore, in 12 years, if our emissions are still the same, we will have emitted enough CO2 to warm by 1.5 degrees Celsius, but we probably won't have warmed by then for a few extra years after that. Of course, there's inertia in the system, so in 12 years, if our emissions are still the same, then we'll also guarantee more warming in the future because it will take time to get from there to net zero. So a more accurate statement might be, if global greenhouse gas emissions drop linearly to zero starting from 2018, we'll have around 24 years to have a decent probability of avoiding 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. That's still pretty radical, you need to get to global net zero by 2040, but it's a less catchy slogan. But of course the more objectionable part of the 12 years to save the world bit is not the 12 years bit, but the save the world bit. Because the whole point of the IPCC report in 2018 was to explain the impacts of climate change at 1.5 degrees Celsius. Remember, Paris had two targets. It had the main target, which was 2 degrees, and the aspirational target, 1.5 degrees. And off the back of Paris, they decided to commission this report, which would see what the differences were between 1.5 and 2, to demonstrate that 1.5 was a better target, because it was arbitrarily chosen. Well, it's a little unfair to say it was arbitrarily chosen. Instead, there was a very vigorous and important campaign by less economically developed and more vulnerable countries to insist that the 1.5 target was included in the report. It was a valiant thing that they did in Paris. And the report in 2018, has now shown us that there are pretty huge differences between 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius. But this is the point of the report. It tells you what the impacts are of 1.5 degrees Celsius. They're bad, and we'd rather avoid them, but they're not human extinction. You can read the summary of the report in plain language to see that. Climate change is not a binary choice between catastrophe and everything's fine. To say that is denial of the impacts that it's had already. And to say that is denial of what we can do to stop the impacts. Things are already quite bad at 1.1 degrees Celsius. Things would be much worse at 2 degrees Celsius than 1.5. That was the whole point of the 1.5 report. Yet doomists will often be so extremely vague about this, or leap on the 12 years and other similarly arbitrary deadlines, and then attach this somehow to the narrative of accelerating feedbacks, which is not really what the report says. So sometimes you will see 12 years until climate change becomes irreversible or catastrophic climate change becomes inevitable as alternative formulations, neither of which is any more accurate. For people whose homes have already been flooded, whose lives have already been ruined, it's already a catastrophe. And unfortunately, barring huge large-scale removal of CO2, the effects that we've had are already irreversible. They're not likely to be reversed in anyone's lifetime who's listening to this. But is catastrophe inevitable? No. No. Not for everyone. There are lots of catastrophes in the future that can be prevented. And the whole point, the predominant message, if there was a predominant message that's come out of climate science in the last 20-30 years, is just how much is still within our power to control and how much we can change if we stop burning fossil fuels and emitting greenhouse gases. I want to get really pedantic and give you a solid example, a solid case study, so that you know I'm not fighting against a straw man here. And... I'm going to quote some more from Jem Bendel, who is the guy behind Deep Adaptation. By the way, <laughs> Guy McPherson is a doctor of forestry, 
Uh, Jem Bendel is a professor, I believe, of philosophy. Um, but both of these people will refer to themselves as doctor and professor in all times without mentioning that their academic qualifications are not in climate science. Now again, am I being a tone police person here and saying you can't comment on climate science if you're not an academically qualified climate scientist? No, no, of course not. Everyone has a right to research these things and comment on them for themselves and listen to what they want to say. But what I will say is that, you know, going around saying I'm a professor, emphasising my academic qualifications, it, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting tack to take, right? If I, if I went into, if I'd uh, got a degree in physics and I went into history and said that historians are completely wrong about the Roman Empire and then kept telling everyone that I was Dr. X or whatever, the implication is that I know more about Rome than historians do. And if you're going to be like Jem Bendel and claim that you know better than all of the mainstream climate scientists who are in denial, emotional denial about what's going on, um, then I think you need to be more <laughs> uh, generous and more obvious and more straightforward about what your qualifications are. But I mean, we're going to see and we're going to quote a response to some of his critics and you can assess for yourself how intellectually rigorous it is. Um, so he had a blog post where he responded to some climate scientists critiquing his work. The blog post, if you want to look it up, the blog post, if you want to look it up, was called The Worst Argument to Try to Win, and Bendel said that he will make two minor corrections and clarifications on his original paper as a result of their critique. So this is just one of the sections where he addresses critics. And he's talking now about his deep adaptation paper, which started this movement, which we mentioned. He says, quote, In the paper, I wrote, quote, Scientists who estimated that existing CO2 in the atmosphere should already produce global ambient temperature rises over 5 degrees Celsius. And so there is no carbon budget. It has already been overspent. Was still 2015. One of my critics has commented that this is nonsense as well. I looked again at the sources and the critics of the author's methods, and I agree that it is not a widely shared view, which would have been appropriate to note in the paper. However, the two points remain. First, Dr Wolfgang Knorr has recently estimated that the carbon budget will be spent by 2025. The problem is the high uncertainty surrounding Earth system feedbacks. If you take the conservative estimate of the IPCC, 100 gigatons of CO2 for permafrost and arctic methane, then at current trends, the IPCC's two-thirds chance of staying within 1.5C will be exhausted in about five years' time. If you include a wider range of positive feedbacks, it's quite likely that the budget has already been exhausted. Whether the budget is already spent or current emissions trajectories mean that we now know it will be spent in the next five years are not significant differences for the main point about the atmosphere already having too much carbon in it for a safe climate. The second issue here is the prediction of warming. The global ambient warming of 5 degrees from current levels is not a consensus view of science, and I didn't state that it was. Mainstream climate researchers have concluded that climate change is and will happen much faster than the IPCC predicted, Zoo et al. 2018. What is important since I wrote the paper is what the latest and most advanced models are projecting. They are suggesting that on current emissions pathways we are headed for over 6 degrees of warming by the end of the century, Johnson 2019. That is a catastrophic level of warming which could threaten the survival of the human race. Verdict, I should clarify that Wasdall 2015 is not offering a mainstream view, and instead might include information from mainstream scientists, including that which came out after my DA paper, who are suggesting similar outlooks. End quote. So that's a fairly lengthy quote there, um, but you see what he's doing here, right? In his original paper, the founding document of the whole deep adaptation movement, 
He includes a claim that we have already emitted enough CO2 to lead to 5 degrees of warming. That is way, 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 way beyond anything that most climate scientists would accept as even remotely likely. He's then challenged on the claim. He backs down slightly and says, oh, I never meant to indicate that this was a mainstream view. But that subtly implies that it might still be accurate as he trashes the mainstream elsewhere as being in emotional denial about how bad things really are. And then he points to three claims from other scientists. So, remember, the original claim is that we've already emitted enough CO2 to lead to 5 degrees Celsius of warming. Here are the three claims. One claim is that the carbon budget for 1.5 degrees of warming could be exhausted within five years, from Dr. Knorr. Another is that climate change is happening faster than the IPCC predicted. And a third is that if we follow RCP 8.5 to the end of the century, the worst-case climate scenario, we could see 6 degrees C of warming. He then describes all of these positions as quote-unquote similar outlooks and says that his original paper only needs a minor clarification. The tactic of eliding things that are defensible with things that are not at all defensible as if they're totally the same and hiding under some umbrella of uncertainty is simply intellectually dishonest. Without getting into the merits of any of the papers that Bendel cites, it should be obvious to everyone that there is a world of difference between we've already emitted enough CO2 for 5 degrees of warming and in 5 years we will have emitted enough CO2 for 1.5 degrees of warming. How on earth anyone can describe those as similar outlooks with a straight face is totally beyond me. Similarly, what will happen at the end of the century is not the same as what's already about to happen. And finally, of course, just because things are happening faster than the IPCC predicted doesn't mean they're happening as fast as you would say. I could say that there will be 10 degrees Celsius of warming tomorrow, and then say, but it's happening faster than the IPCC predicted. Well, that doesn't back up my specific claim, does it? You know, if the listeners of this podcast have grown faster than I expected them to do, it doesn't mean that I'm going to overtake Joe Rogan anytime soon, does it? But the reason that this is so important is that there's a vast, vast, vast difference between what Bendel claims he can support and what he's actually saying, you know. There's a vast difference between the evidence that he's citing and the claims that he's making. And it is essentially the difference between the situation being salvageable and not. It's the difference between climate change being something we can actually address and us genuinely being doomed already, which we're not. I don't want to emotionally prepare for the collapse of civilization if we can stop it from happening, but nor would I like to take my advice about how inevitable it is from someone who thinks that 5 degrees of Celsius of warming is the same as 1.5, because it isn't. But this is just another part of the tactic to elide and mush together bad things with doomism arguments. And of course, the problem with this kind of logic that I'm sure you already see is that you could just as easily apply it for the complete opposite conclusion. If I was a climate denier, maybe my first claim is that the world is getting cooler. Climate scientists would point out that this isn't true, and then I would point to some projection that was too pessimistic and say, look, we're running below this projection. The outlook is similar. I mean, you would reject that, but doomers do this often. If you're claiming the world is going to end, it's not enough to show that some projection in the past has been too optimistic. Now, I appreciate that some people might feel a bit sympathetic to this point of view because they'll say, well, you know, he's just doing rhetoric. He's just trying to create a sense of urgency by emphasising the worst case scenario because he doesn't think that people are acting enough on climate change and they need to be more urgently worried about it than they currently are. 
But for me, I don't think that's actually the case, and I don't think that's the result of this movement either, and I think we risk falling into a doomy trap when we do that. Imagine everyone believed that the world would end in the next 10 years. In 2025, that's just four years from now, we'd be halfway there, and not much progress has been made yet. It's feasible that in five years, emissions could be more or less the same as they are today. Should we give up? Of course not. Every bit of warming matters, every tonne of carbon we emit matters. Everything we can avoid doing to our climate, to our natural world, is going to reduce harm and risk. We can't sugarcoat how bad the situation is, but the honest framing is simply that everything we can do to cut emissions reduces harm and reduces risk. It's at the stage now where to achieve these Paris goals is going to require a rapid transformation of society, and it's going to require a lot more effort than is currently being put in. But I worry that if people genuinely believe the world will end due to climate change if we don't hit net zero in five or ten years, their response won't be to act, but to conclude it'll never happen, and buy real estate in New Zealand or start putting up walls around their country. The only thing more depressing to me than seeing climate change debate and all of this science and argumentation and so on about one of the greatest problems that humanity has ever faced boiled down to a false tweet dichotomy of apocalypse in five years or not is the thought that some people might actually believe it and yet they're still living their lives as normal. Because once you've hit the button saying the apocalypse is coming and people don't respond, what do you do then? It's almost as if it's in the realm of beliefs that people half hold but don't interrogate. Or else, how could you possibly live life as normal? I think part of this comes back to an endless argument that we have about whether you motivate people better with fear or hope. This is too simplistic, of course, but it's the dichotomy that people often find themselves arguing either side of. But it's too simplistic for how humans actually are. Whenever we act, we are motivated by a complex mix of fears of what might happen if we don't, and hopes for what might happen if we do. Optimism, taken too far, can breed complacency. Climate change, why worry? No big deal, technology will sort it out anyway. Fear can become doomism and defeatism and despair. Neither of those are good ways to make the changes that we need to make. You know, anyone who's... Think of this as an analogy to your personal life if you think of a situation where you were stuck doing the wrong things. Do you think being wildly optimistic about the future was going to help? No. Do you think being wildly terrified about what's going to happen is going to do anything other than lead you to despair? No, of course not. Not when you need to do something complicated that requires a lot of long-term planning and action and commitment and cooperation with others. You need that mix. You need both. Is it going to shock anyone listening to hear me say that things are complicated and we should be somewhere towards the middle of two extremes in a debate? And is it going to shock anyone listening to hear that I still have faith that we can present people with the facts? that we can have discussions, that we can learn from each other and our research and the evidence and the changing circumstances, and that we can maintain interesting, nuanced, relevant positions at different points on the spectrum between the exaggerated extremes of complacency and doomism. We have to believe that we're good enough to do that and not just stick to these polemical positions on either side. And of course, when you misrepresent the facts, it has far worse consequences beyond that. Some people seem to think I am naive to think that, so... Let's talk a little bit about why doomers doom. So in the next episode, I want to talk a little bit more about why doomers doom. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. Remember, you can find us on the web at physicalpodcast.com. There you will find the full archive of all of our episodes that we've done in the past, 
and you'll find the contact form. You can get in touch with us with any, any comments, questions or concerns that you have about the show. Please do. I love hearing from you. You can get in touch with us on social media as well. We're on Twitter at PhysicsPod. And there are ways you can support the show by donating to us through Patreon, subscribing and getting episodes early. All of that information is on the website at physicspodcast.com. Until next time then, please do take care.